0: Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, the Lord speaks to us from Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, and Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, So New York City is one of the most uh, pluralistic cities in the world. Every uh, religion and faith tradition uh, is pretty much represented here. Uh, We have anywhere, the estimates are anywhere between 600 to 800 different languages that are spoken here, uh, nearly every philosophy and political ideology is present. New York City is simply uh, a hotbed of ideas and commitments and beliefs of all different types. And knowing that that's true, a question that we need to wrestle with is how do people of such great diversity, with such a wide variety of opinions about a host of different things, how do we inter- intersect with and interact with one another? And what do we do when ideas clash, when in the end, one person's perspective is most likely going to prevail over another person's perspective? And most specifically, why should Christians be at the forefront of learning and engaging with those who have alternative worldviews than ourselves? Well, today we conclude our series called The Resurrection. Uh, This has been a series which has uh, started, we started on Easter Sunday, uh, and it's a series that that has considered why the resurrection matters and how we approach some of life's most challenging uh, situations and ideas. It's taken seriously, the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says that if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then the Christian faith... And everything that we believe, everything that we preach is useless and futile, and that Christians ought to be pitied amongst all others for their beliefs. But that if the resurrection of Jesus did happen, and it did, then the resurrection shapes and informs how we ought to view all aspects of life. And in this final week, we consider an issue most pressing now, I think more pressing now than ever, is how does the resurrection frame how we engage with alternative worldviews and ideas. And I hope today that we can all learn how to be people who are unifying voices in a day and in an age where division seems to be the norm, all while still being able to hold to convictions that we might have. And to do so, to understand how we can approach this, I want to hone in on a particular doctrine of the church, particularly of our branch of the Christian tradition, Reformed tradition, a doctrine known as common grace. I believe that common grace has a lot to teach us about how we can be extraordinarily unifying people in the midst of these divided times. And so to do that, I want to take a look at three things. I want to consider this from three ways. First, I want to take a look at the foundations of common grace the opportunities that come from common grace, and then finally, the power of special grace. Okay. So first, the foundations of common grace. Uh, there are many different passages of Scripture that reveal uh, kind of the nature and the character of this doctrine known as common grace. Uh, what you just heard read are just a couple of them. There are a couple uh, that I want to put in front of you to make sure that we're clear about. The first one would be this, Psalm 145, which you just heard read, says that the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And then in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Another passage that kind of gets at the same idea is Luke 6, where God it says that God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. In other words, there is a kind of grace that is given to all humanity. The idea here is that God is good to everyone that he has made. He gives good gifts to everyone he has made, even if those people reject him as God, both the righteous and the unrighteous experience the benefits of the sun shining and the rain falling. In this sense, there is a common grace given to all humanity that allows humanity to flourish, whether they believe in the biblical God or not. And then on top of that, in the Old Testament, there are places like Genesis 6 and Genesis 20 and Exodus 24 where God's common grace exists in restraining evil. Genesis 6 in the old uh, King James says that God's spirit strives with man. The idea being there that the very conscience that is in the heart of all people, the discernment that exists in the heart of all people to know what is right and what is wrong, right? There's a sense that everyone has intuitively about what is right, what is wrong. Just that conscience is part of God's common grace. I mean, over the course of history, you've had many philosophers like Aristotle who have recognized that there's this natural law that is built into existence. And from the biblical perspective, it's what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 2, where he speaks of the law being written on our hearts. In other words, as image bearers of God, there will be glimpses of God's character, his eternal power, his divine nature, as Romans 1 tells us that is available to all people. The Lord is good and compassionate to everyone that he has made. So what does that then mean, practically speaking? Well, it means that we cannot, no one can, be completely dismissive of anyone made in the image of God. Because God is reflecting himself somewhere in every worldview, every experience, and every belief system. In some way, God is revealing himself through a variety of different places and perspectives. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, if you know the story, he's preaching in Athens, and he's preaching to this large group of pagan idol worshipers. And in his sermon, if you go back and you read, that, uh, read his sermon there, it's interesting that in his sermon, he quotes several philosophers of the people. He quotes some of their own poets, some of their own uh, philosophers. Why? Why does he draw on those things? Well, he does it, one, because he's trying to be contextual and he's trying to speak uh, speak the language of the people that are hearing. But he also recognized that even amongst the pagans, God was reflecting himself through their poets and through their philosophers. Now, if all of that is true, if God is at work and he is good and, and gracious to all people then as a Christian, as I look out at the various worldviews and religions and philosophies, I need to be able to say, there's something that God is doing. There's some kind of common grace that exists amongst those people because they are image bearers. You know, as a Christian, I cannot look at a Muslim or a Hindu or even a secularist and say, there's nothing here. There's nothing here that I could possibly learn from you. Because to do so would be to reject the image of God in that person. There is something that they are able to teach me through their conceptions of the world. And maybe even more practical. Right? So that's kind of the religious uh, uh, reality. But even more practical, I think, for many of us today, and maybe appropriate, more appropriate in our modern day, this even applies to things like politics. I mean, just as an example, if you are a Christian and a Democrat, you cannot say there is nothing to be learned from Republicans because to do so would be to reject the image of God in Republicans. If you're, you know, flip that around. If you're a Republican, the same, is the, the same is the case for you. Democrats have something to teach you about God through their conceptions of the world. Common grace demands that we take seriously the ways that God is reflecting himself in all people, worldviews, and perspectives. Now, having said that, of course, it's also important to say, and we're going to talk more about this a little bit later, But that does not mean that we wholesale embrace everything that might be taught or believed by every single group. As a Christian, I will diverge from my Muslim neighbor's opinion or understanding about the nature of God. I'm going to. We're going to have that difference. There will be certain lines that are drawn between people of different political parties. Otherwise, there would be no political parties. But what common grace recognizes is the image of God in people. I can't emphasize that point enough. The image of God is in every single person across every single dividing line, and as a result, there is something that he is revealing about himself through them. Okay, so if that is what common grace is, it's an understanding that God is good and gracious to all people, what are going to be the implications of it? Well, the implications are profound, and I find um, most lacking right now in our current state. We are in the midst of deep partisanship, deep division, and deep culture wars, both inside and outside of the church. But see, here's the, here's, the, here's the point, that we as Christians must transcend those divisions and culture wars, which then brings me now to the opportunities that arise from common grace. Right, so if we take that doctrine of common grace, that God is at work in some ways in all people, what are the opportunities to be had Well, the way I see it, in the midst of our current division, there are uh, three different perspectives that currently exist out there about how people are to interact with each other. And I think all three perspectives are wrong. Let me explain to you what, or let me tell you what they are and why I think they're wrong. Okay, so the three that tend to be most prominent would, would be what I would call isolationism, relativism, and factiousness. All right, let me explain to you what those are and see if any of them sound familiar right now in our current climate. So isolationism, uh, on just kind of one end of a spectrum, isolationism is essentially uh, someone who just flat out will not engage with people of different groups uh, or people with different ideologies. Often, you know, within Christian circles, the way that usually plays out, is that they're often people are often fearful or they distrust anything that's not quote-unquote Christian, and so as a result, they retreat from culture um, and, or from learning because they want to just kind of keep themselves and their family and their tribe in a safe bubble. They don't want to interact with anything that might not be Christian. And so this is, you know, Christians have been doing this for years, but that's really where a lot of the Christian subculture tends to come up, where we're intentionally distancing ourselves from anything that's quote-unquote secular. So my concern with isolationism, though, is that it does tend to undermine the image of God in those who are not Christian by not honoring the way that God might be revealing himself through them, through his common grace. Isolationism is not the solution. You cannot retreat. That's not what it means to be in the world but not of it. We can participate in the things of this world without retreating and isolating. The second thing, the second one, the other uh, perspective that I think is problematic is something called relativism. Right, it's kind of on the other end of the spectrum. And simply put, relativism really does claim that there is no real conceptions of truth. It's the belief that all roads lead to the same destination, that everyone's ideas are equally valid. Here's the problem. My concern with relativism is, one, it's just completely intellectually inconsistent, that right? you can't have two competing ideas and then claim that both of them are true. When religious ideas, for example, when religious ideas about God clash or disagreements about politics clash, it's inconsistent to say that all ideas are the same. They're not. It just doesn't work. Not all claims can be true at the same time. But the second thing that relativism does is it also undermines the image of God by not honoring the way that God is revealing himself through his common grace to different people. Plus, let's just not forget, this is a bit of a side note, that it's impossible to be truly relativist, relativistic. To say that there can be no truth claims is itself a truth claim, so relativism just doesn't work at all. But the third one would be this. Okay. And this is the one that I think is the most common posture of the day. I think isolationism works, or, I mean, uh, exists. I think relativism exists. But here's the one that I think is most prevalent, the perspective that I would call factiousness. See, factiousness takes this immediate warlike posture when engaging alternative ideas. People and ideas are enemies to fight, not image bearers from whom we can learn. People and ideas are viewed in this kind of binary, right and wrong, good and evil kind of way, without consideration for the ideas and concerns and perspectives that those people might hold. I mean, this has become the foundation of our political discourse. And uh, culture wars right now. Combativeness with a desire to make enemies. Like, that is the goal. People are enemies, and they need to be battled. And if you don't believe that that's true, then I have to assume that you don't watch cable news, you don't scroll Twitter, you don't possess a Facebook account. Factiousness dominates. It's the way that people interact with each other now. And here's my concern. Factiousness... Dominates even amongst, too often, even amongst God's people. There's this refusal to acknowledge the wisdom, perspectives, and beliefs of others. Even those within the church, there's like this warlike posture toward one another. And too often, some believe it's some divine calling that they have to be on this battle, to fight this war. And I want to suggest that factiousness is not the answer either holding to some conviction and make everyone else an enemy who doesn't hold that conviction is not the solution. And so what I want to suggest is that common grace gives opportunity for Christians to transcend these divisive categories. I want to suggest that common grace gives Christians the ability to be some of the most nuanced thinkers of our day while at the same time holding to the core central convictions that Christians hold. You know, there's probably uh, no thinker in modern philosophy who's argued more for this position than the theologian Herman Bavink. I want to just read to you a little bit of some of the reflections that he's had about this idea of common grace. And in particular, listen to his words from a, an 1894 lecture entitled Common Grace. He puts it this way. He said, through the doctrine of common grace, the Reformed, that's the church tradition that we're part of, the uh, common grace, the Reformed have, on the one hand, maintained the specific and absolute character of the Christian religion, but on the other hand, they have been second to none in their appreciation for whatever of the good and beautiful is still being given by God to sinful human beings. Do you hear what he's saying? That Christians, and particularly he's speaking of Reformed Christians who hold to Tom and Grace, have been second to none in being able to hold to their Christian convictions while at the same time appreciating what God is doing, what God is showing, the good and beautiful that God is accomplishing even amongst quote-unquote sinful human beings. I mean, do you, do you hear how incredibly counterintuitive that tends to be to our modern ears? That Christians can be second to none in appreciating what is beautiful and good, given by God to sinful human beings? For those that are outside of the church, when they look at the church, do they think, oh, yeah, those are some nuanced thinkers that are appreciating much of what's going on in the world or in our culture war culture? Do Christians tend to be those that are falling prey to fear-mongering that so often leads to factiousness and Culture wars. I mean, my vision of it all is that tends to be what Christians are known for. Whether or not it's actually true is a different thing, but those that are outside the church looking at the church, they see factiousness. They don't see this appreciation for what is good and beautiful out in the world. And here's why I bring this before us. There's opportunity that the church has if we would be willing to embrace this idea of common grace. There's opportunity for us, for Christians to hold to what is true and make known what Christians believe to be true while at the same time dignifying image bearers that believe things that are outside of what maybe Christians might believe. You know, there's an opportunity from common grace where Christians can again become the most nuanced and well-rounded thinkers, second to none. There's an opportunity for Christians to be the most gracious engagers of alternative ideas. There's an opportunity for Christians to honor the image of God in others by listening and learning from those who might otherwise be viewed as our enemy. There are a hundred different examples that I see daily of how Christians feel the need to be combative feel the need to end up in this culture war as opposed to stopping breathing and considering what might be shown out in the world that maybe sits outside of what Christians might believe and there's there's so many that I could name i mean it, it wouldn't even make sense to go through the mall right now but our politics are marked by this the way that you know our our debates around sex ethics and the debates around things like the 1619 Project and Critical Race Theory or debates around Israel and Palestine. I mean, there's a host of issues out there that seem to constantly not only be bringing Christians up against the perspectives of those outside of the church, but even with Christians inside of the church where we've just made everything a war. Everything is a battle. Everyone is someone out, someone Another opinion is just someone else to be conquered, to defeat. But I wonder, is there opportunity for us to embrace common grace and say, you know what, maybe there is something to be learned. Maybe there is something that God is revealing to others that I just do not see. What if there is something beautiful and good that God is doing that he wants to reveal to us? And maybe it's coming through, in Bobbing's work, quote-unquote, sinful humanity. Now, with all that said, and I believe that to be true, I believe everything I just said to be true, I think it's something that Christians need to get much better at doing. I want to also give a warning, though, because as we do this, right, so as you go out and as you we're experiencing the perspectives of, of others, Ephesians 4 comes to mind for me. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul, he speaks of those who are blown about by every wind of doctrine. And in, in this passage and what he's talking about there is that he has, there's this, this concern for people that are easily swayed by the opinions and perspectives of others because they're not rooted. They're not anchored in anything unchanging. Now, this is a sermon for another day, but many are too easily swayed by the ideology of the day. And so my caution would be is that as you're engaging with alternative ideas, desiring to learn from a plethora of other worldviews and perspectives, the caution would be is that if you're not rooted, if you're not anchored, Ephesians 4 would be the concern. That if you're not anchored, it's easy to be blown by every wind of doctrine. It's it's easy to be swayed by anyone's perspective. And common grace is not, it's important to say, relinquishing that what is true. But it's a willingness to appreciate what aligns with the truth that we might possess as Christians. But in order to do so, it's important that we're not swayed by every wind of doctrine. We, might, we must know well what is what the unwavering commitments that we ought to hold as Christians. You know, leaning on common grace only works when Christians themselves are rooted and anchored in something more powerful than the opinions and the perspectives of the world. And that is why we must be rooted not in common grace, but rather, for the Christian, we must be rooted in what we're going to call special grace. All right, let's consider this the power of special grace. Uh, So if common grace is given to all people as image bearers of God, special grace, which is also sometimes called saving grace, is grace that is given by God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's what Ephesians 2 tells us, for if we've been, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's what Romans 3 tells us, that justification is, is a gift by his grace through the redemption which comes in Jesus Christ. Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That grace is different than the common grace we're speaking of. That grace is a saving grace. That grace is a grace that is given, that acknowledges our need for a Savior and the transforming work that he brings to us. It's a grace available through Jesus taking our sin to the cross and giving us a righteousness that we did not ourselves earn. It's a grace that gives us the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead to empower us to live in response to this saving, special grace. It's a grace that makes us more like our Savior every day. See, common grace will not put us in right relationship with God. Special grace does that. Common grace will not make you more like Jesus. Special grace does that. Common grace will not give us hope for that which is beyond the brokenness of the world. Special grace does that. Common grace will not bring life to the dead. Special grace does that. But special grace also gives us the confidence. It gives us that rootedness to accept all that might be seen in God's common grace. I hope you're seeing that connection. As we embrace common grace, we can do so with confidence if we hold to God's special grace. Why? Because, to the point of our series, Jesus rose from the dead. See, that matters because Jesus' resurrection is a statement of his victory over sickness and death and evil. And do you know what that means? It means that we don't need to be constantly fighting the battles of the day in the same way that many do. We don't need to fight the battles and engage in a culture war because Christians understand that as we trust and rest in what Jesus has done, we can have a confidence that what is right, what is true, what is just will eventually one day be seen by all. This idea that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, it's the idea that one day what is good, right, and true will be seen and known by all. And so I can rest in the fact that Jesus has already won a victory and that this victory is uh, defeating that which is counter to his kingdom. And so my primary plea to all of us would be first and foremost that we must trust in God's special grace. We must trust be looking to and trusting in Jesus alone, looking to what he has accomplished through the cross, through the resurrection, to see him live for you, to see him die for you, to see him rise again for you, to hope and rest and trust in his special grace. And as we hope and trust in his special grace, it allows us to have an anchor, a rootedness that allows us to embrace the common grace that exists around us. And I'll tell you what, the more and more we trust in special grace, the more and more we learn God's word, the more and more we understand what God um, has deemed to be good and right and true in this world, the more easily we're able to go out and learn from those that might take different perspectives than us, all while still being able to hold to what God has deemed good and right and true. I mean, that ought to then produce for Christians a a humility, a posture of humility, a posture of gentleness. You know, one of the things I get concerned by is how often Christians, especially when standing for truth, think boldness means warlike posture, when one can be bold while also being gracious and humble. My concern too often is that Christians, they don't take seriously the image of God in others, and it's easier just to discredit Someone else and completely assume that they have nothing to offer me when maybe, maybe God desires to reveal something through them to me that I am currently blind to. And why do I bring all this up? I bring up a topic like this because, again, I'm simply concerned with the ways that Christians engage in these polarizing times. You know, I I have relationships with people across the full ideological spectrum, political or otherwise. We have people in our church on that full ideological, political spectrum. And as a congregation, my prayer is that we are better than the factiousness that exists out in the contemporary culture wars. I mean, I need us to work harder at parsing out what is gospel and what is not. My prayer is that we reclaim what Bovink had said, that we again become second to none in our appreciation for whatever is good and beautiful out in the world, even if it's outside of the church, even if it's even outside of what Christians believe to be true. I want to be a people who are under the authority of the king and under the authority of his word who are not blown by every wind of doctrine while also recognizing that maybe he is revealing to us our blind spots and our failures through the work of other people. I need us to have that kind of posture. And that's my prayer for us as a church, that he would give us that wisdom, he'd give us that discernment, but ultimately he would root us so deeply in the truths of his special saving grace that we can become people that embrace and enjoy and experience his common grace to all and as a result become some of the most loving and gracious and bold at the same time people. I pray that the resurrection, the power of the resurrection would do that in us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we do thank you Lord, uh, first and foremost, for your special grace. It's a grace that has saved. It is a grace that redeems. It is a grace that shows us our failures, but then also gives us the hope of restoration, power of the resurrection. And God, I pray that you would help us as a church to root ourselves deeply in that special grace that we would take very seriously the necessity of being anchored in what Jesus has done, being anchored in his word. And as a result of that anchoring, we would then be able to go out and be a people who are able to engage with ideas and perspectives and worldviews that are maybe very different than our own, and yet do so with a posture of grace and love and compassion and curiosity to have a posture of listening and learning. And Lord, I I trust that as we are able to do that, it will uh, open up doors for us to also share the things that we believe to be right and true and good, particularly about the work of your Son. God, would you do it? It requires resurrection power because in our fallenness, we don't want to do this, nor are we good at it, but... As a result of the power of your resurrection, it's possible. Help us do it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.